Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest this week is an award-winning writer, illustrator, and cartoonist. He's had his cartoons published in the New York Times, Mad Magazine, and The New Yorker. They've also been featured in the Cartoon Art Museum of San Francisco, the Smithsonian Institute, and the Cartoon Museum of London. Bob Eckstein is a regular guest on Cityscape. He's also a snowman expert. We'll learn more about that coming up. Bob's latest book is Everyone's a Critic, the ultimate cartoon book. The book features a collection of New Yorker cartoons that celebrate the art of the drawn critique. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me back. So your latest book is Everyone's a Critic, the ultimate cartoon book. Tell us about this project. Oh, my goodness. Just in time, because I think we're living in the, in the age of golden negativity, a golden age of negativity. And it's something that I think we all need right now is to to have something to laugh about because, you know, we've been going through a period in which everyone's a critic. You open the book by asking the question, what's more fun than being judgmental? <laughs> I think it's true. It's true. It, it's something that we all came around to. It's actually kind of recent. It's um, something that happened in 2004 that it became public for everyone to sort of, you know, bitch about everything. And that is because um, Amazon... Amazon reviews became something that was very common. And Amazon first thought that this was going to be business suicide to allow their products to be reviewed by the public. But instead, it was something that was a huge hit. And then um, that same year, 2004, Facebook and Yelp came out. And then a couple of years later, there was the TV show America's Got Talent. And now everyone thinks they're a critic. And it's, um, well, you know, even with now the Iron Chef and all the reality shows, I mean, none of us can, can just uh, have a risotto without criticizing it and, you know, and just enjoy a chef salad without going crazy. You even reference dating apps. We're very critical when we're on dating apps like Tinder, right? Exactly. Everything is a is a beauty contest, and we're actually even critical of ourselves. I mean spending, you know, all the time before we go out in front, making sure we're all proper and stuff. And so it's really gotten carried away. And I figured this is the time to come out with a book. And the book is a collection of cartoons by the world's greatest cartoonists. And I do contend that this book is the funniest book out there. And no thanks to me, but all the contributors. I mean, these are like the funniest people. We have Raj Chaz and we have uh, Sam Gross and my um Bob Mankoff, and so many great cartoonists. And a lot of their work is not seen in publication now because a lot of magazines don't run cartoons now. Like Mad Magazine stopped and another magazine stopped. So this is a great chance to see some of these uh, greats and their, and their work. I was going to ask you that question. How hard is it to be a cartoonist these days? Oh, it's like, it's like trying to be a blacksmith. It is such an obsolete profession. I mean, there's a lot of people doing cartoons, but unfortunately, the real estate for it is very limited. There isn't a lot of cartooning opportunities because of newspapers and magazines struggling. It's a tough period. How much work are you getting these days simply for your cartoons? Well, I try to do something where I tie it into journalistic things. I try to cover stories in the format of cartooning. Like, for instance, I went to Las Vegas recently on this sort of kick I'm on with reviewing everything. So I went there and reviewed everything, and I I documented it with cartoons. 
and then that's going to go into a magazine. Actually, there's a large magazine that's going to run the pieces, but they asked to wait until it comes out for sure because they don't know when it's going to be used. But I've been using that format, that sort of formula, to use my artwork and make it with a journalistic twist. I did that recently also with uh, Publishers Weekly. We did a piece about New Year's resolutions, and I did this for Writer's Digest, and they ran a piece in which I went to a writer's conference, and instead of just writing about it, we used my illustrations and cartoons. Because people do want to laugh about these events, and they want to make light of it, and I feel like that's something I could bring to the to the table. Let's get back to your trip to Las Vegas. What did you review in <laughs> Vegas? Oh, boy. Vegas. It's America's crotch. I really like Vegas, and it's just everyone has to go once in their lifetime if they haven't been there already. I went to the hotels. I stayed at a, few, a couple of different hotels and reviewed them. I went to all the buffets that I could stomach. Um, before I had to go to the hospital. <laughs> you know, I had one of those things where I had like a pass and I went each night to a buffet. And, and that's something I take seriously too. I don't take it lightly that I'm I'm reviewing these, these restaurants and, and these um, different venues. And um, aside from the food, I also went to the shows. I went to the shows. I went to Carrot Top, of course. And it's something I do every time I go to Vegas as I see Carrot Top. And I also saw the Beatles show, and I saw the Tim Burton show. Tim Burton actually had a quite a nice show right outside the city with his collection of neon lights and other, other souvenirs he collected from Vegas. He's a big fan of Las Vegas. So that was nice. So there's actually artwork in Vegas. Maybe not at the level of New York City, but it's there. You have to go look for it. And I had a ball just reviewing everything. I was there for about 10 days until I was screaming and breathing heavy into a, a paper bag hyperventilating. <laughs> yeah, a lot of smoke in Vegas exactly. still, right? It's amazing. Yeah. You go there and everyone smokes. And um, no one's shy. There's a lot of um, funny, funny lines. I got a lot of material just like in the transportation on the buses and the trams and stuff. Overhearing people talk about their experience, um, you know, people just outwardly saying that they're shaping somewhere or something. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's Vegas. How did you get into cartooning in the first place? Because I know it came to you late in life, right? It did. Um, I was into illustration. I love Sports Illustrated as a kid, like a lot of little boys do. You like sports. And then I was reading and, and, and looking at the illustrations in that magazine. And that got me into artwork. And I did go to art school and um, but I wasn't interested in cartooning per se. I never had anyone telling me they thought I was funny or anything, so I never really felt supported or encouraged to go in that direction until later. And it was only later that I did a book called The History of the Snowman that had cartoons in it, and then I met cartoonists. And they egged me on to, to explore this avenue, which is really something that I think twice about a lot because it's a business model, as I mentioned, is just really tough. But I did get on that ride. It was actually a dare. Was it was a dare? The, I was at the New Yorker lunch. They have the weekly lunch. Sam Gross and I had become friends. And he said, why don't you come back here? You know, Because I told him I liked the meal. I had a fun time. I said, can I, you know, what does it take to like, come back? And he goes, well, if you come back, come back with 10 sketches. And he introduced me to Bob Mankoff. Bob bought the first cartoon that I had drawn. And that kind of was... A mistake because it hooked me into it. 
I thought, oh, I know what I'm doing. Let's do this now. Might as well, this, this might as well happen. What was that first cartoon? It was Hecklers on Poetry Night. And it was a guy, bunch of hecklers in the audience um, just tearing down this poor poet. You call, you call that a metaphor? Uh-huh. You know, uh, it was just a silly first attempt. And I didn't realize at the time it was beginner's luck um, because I didn't sell another cartoon until like about half a year later. I didn't realize that that's the way it worked. When I went in there that first time, there were just a few people, and I didn't realize that there were hundreds of cartoons being sent in on, you know, invisibly from the outside, from all corners of, of the country. And I learned my lesson. It's, it's not that easy. What makes for a funny illustration or cartoon? You know, it, it's not an exact formula, and that's why it's not always easy. You know, it comes to you in different ways. It could be something I overheard, and it could just fall on my lap, though, like a leaf from a tree. And you just know it works when you see it on the page, and it, it, it works. Now, there are principles to what can make the good cartoon, and people try to adhere to that by, by saying you have a setup. Setup should be familiar. That's why you have so many um, reoccurring themes, like, like say, uh, Desert Island or the Grim Reaper. It's because we immediately, as the viewer, make a connection. We know, okay, I, I know where I'm at now. So you want to set up the viewer to understand that he's going to be familiar with something. But then you try to create tension in some way. There's something wrong going on in the picture that doesn't seem right, and that creates tension. Then finally, you try to have something that is a twist that releases that tension, and it's also at the same time unpredictable. So you have a punchline where the last word is something you didn't expect and comes out of left field. And that's sort of a, you know, um, breaking it down and sort of uh, dissecting the frog a little bit. And that's something you kind of don't always want to do with, with being funny is that you try to break it down that way because it kind of inhibits your being creative. Uh, more than anything else, you want to be playful. You want to mess around with what's in your mind and explore your imagination to see if you could come up with something that's unusual and then find that that, that sort of um, that, that contrast, that contrast, I guess, is the best way of saying it, where you take two elements and mash it together and then it finds that it creates a humorous sort of, sort of marriage. How much do you need to be thinking about the publication, the New Yorker, for instance, compared to another publication, the audience, and yeah. putting something together? No, that's a good question, but you try not to think about it because it sort of it keeps you back from just being creative. And you don't want to try to pander to a certain audience. Instead, you want to be yourself and use your own voice. And people are more interested in your own voice instead of you trying to, to cater to it. Um, I don't know if everyone would agree with that assessment. And of course, it's hard not to think about your audience sometimes when the New Yorker is one of the very few places left out there. When I first started, there was about 25 places I would submit to. And you submit to the place that paid the best first, and you work your way down that list until you're like selling a cartoon to Cat Fancy magazine or someplace for five bucks. But um, that's kind of how it worked that you uh, you didn't go for one particular audience. But nowadays, you know, and the magazines like Barron's and Harvard Business Review, in which I was a, a regular cartoonist for, they're no longer using cartoons. So you do think about the New Yorker, but I'm thinking also in terms now of books 
and trying to see if my audience could be expanded and I could reach people in a different way. And at the same time, include some people with me who are also looking for some more exposure and could use that extra oomph. So it's been fun. I, I do like the books because it's in your hand and it's sort of something that lasts a little longer than the magazine. And you know, now I feel like people feel the magazines are very disposable. So the book, I think, is more of a precious object that could be a gift and it could be something more substantial. You teach writing and drawing, right, at NYU? Yeah, yeah. That's been a fun thing. I started last year. Uh, they had been asking me to do it for a few years, but I finally decided that uh, I was going to do it because I'm going to spend more time doing journalistic drawing, and then I feel like I could offer a lot to the students who were starting to get into it. And I found that the students were very receptive, and they get very excited about that. And I, I think all of this is a reflection of the public's extension span being shorter and shorter. So people do want to see visuals with the with the reporting, and they want to have a good laugh with everything now. So I think it's a good direction to go in. I'm having fun, and students are too. And It's been a back-to-school day for me today because I'm here, and I'm going back to school this evening. I'm taking screenwriting, and that's very exciting too. I'm going as a student. I, I sharpened my number two pencils, and I got my Frasier lunchbox <laughs> because I'm going to be learning about TV comedy and and that's a lot of fun. And Now, you referenced your book, The Illustrated History of the Snowman, and you are now working to turn that book into a screenplay, right? Is that what inspired you to go back to school? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I decided, I looked in the mirror and said, I got to go back to school. <laughs> I'm going to learn as much as I can about screenwriting. And I've been taking some classes online with podcasts, and I'm going to be taking that same teacher. His name is Jacob Kruger. Jacob Kruger uh, Studios in Manhattan is wonderful, and he's exciting to watch. And I have to admit, part of this is that he inspires me to be a good teacher because he's a performer in the classroom. And he's, it all comes down to storytelling. How do you tell a story? And he does it to perfection, and that's what i got to learn to become a better teacher. How to tell my story to the students so they could take what I've learned and they can apply it to them. What prompted you to tell the story of the snowman? Well, I was always a history buff, and I always loved Sherlock Holmes. Didn't want to do a negative mystery. Didn't want to do a crime. I was thinking, what is one of life's great questions? It would be like, who told the first joke? Or who made the first sandwich? And I stumbled upon who made the first snowman because I decided that that was something that no one uncovered. And I also wanted to do something where they took an innocent object and tried to find the dark side to it. At the same time I made that decision to come out with that book, um, at that time, agents and publish publishers were asking me if I would do a book, and I was searching for a topic. At that same time, Batman came out by Tim Burton. And um, it's a coincidence because I just saw his art show in, in Vegas. And he did this Batman in which everyone was surprised. You know, he had Michael Keaton play a dark back Batman. And I decided, I don't know, maybe the same could be true for the snowman. And what I learned was that there were these stories that no one shared before, like the massacre of 1699 that took place in Fort Schenectady. And there was also the miracle of 1511, which took place in, in Brussels. And these events included sex and violence and these things that you would never associate the snowman with. And how does the snowman figure into these incidents in history? 
You know, he's like a Forrest uh, Gump, a frozen Forrest Gump, that he appeared in these th- th- these different things. In the case of the miracle of 1511, it was just simply a very bad snowstorm that lasted many, many days uh, throughout Europe. And the people got agitated, and the government tried to control the out-of-control public by having these winter festivals. And this was a common thing where the, the government would let everyone kind of let out some steam. And in the case of this um, year, the the public went and made these snow scenes at all the street corners. Altogether, there was 110 documented snow scenes. And these snow scenes contained graphically, uh, sexually graphic scenes and these political commentary against the um, against the city and the church as well. The church had a lot of power back then. And this was the, the, the public's way of having their own Woodstock. This was like a Woodstock in which everyone was free to express themselves at a time. It was really hard to express yourself. So this was a chance for people to do something. And it was like the snow was like free art supplies dropped in front of their doorstep, letting them go out and to, to, for once to speak out and have this sort of chance to have an op-ed. It was very exciting. You know, and it was actually a very popular activity for couples to stroll in the early evening through the town to look at these scenes. So this is something that has a great, rich tradition before Frosty ruined it all <laughs> by making it seem like it's really child's play, when in fact, I consider it one of man's early forms of folk art and also maybe possibly one of the few things we share with our prehistoric ancestors. Now, you traveled around the world for, what, some seven years working on this yeah, project? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. At, at times, it felt like the Da Vinci Code because I would be running from place to place just in time. I would take like a ferry to get to some place in Amsterdam, and then I'd have to run, take a train and take a plane. And it was a lot of fun as I met all these different people. The, the piece would never have gone completed without the help of like a dream team of experts. What I was doing is I was meeting professors of cultural history and art historians at all these different institutes like libraries and museums, and they were sharing with me what little pieces they knew. Like one of the big big finds was I went to the Royal Library at The Hague, and it was there that I found in the margins of an illuminated manuscript dated 1380, there was a snowman in a, in a book of hours we're actually right next to a solemn passage of the crucifixion of Christ. Hmm. And um, that came about from different clues and, and different things. And, and then going down to the basement and then finding in their archives, using a magnifying glass, looking for any blob of snow in all these prints. It, actually, and that was a really exciting time because I didn't know what I was going to find. And I knew I was going to spend days there until I found something. And I did, fi- I did find that, but... It took days. What I, what I did was I asked them for everything they had, every engraving and print that was in the category of winterscapes earlier than the 15th century. And that's how I found references in the dark ages of snowmen being made. You also have a book out on independent bookstores, footnotes from the world's greatest bookstores, a New York Times bestseller. Independent bookstores are very important to you, right? Yes, and we're going through a time now that's um, crucial. Um, Book Culture in Manhattan just closed one of its shops, and they were a great supporter of books. They they did so much for their community. I, I knew the owner, and it's just really a shame. And 
trying to encourage people when I go out and talk at different places. Um, I've been speaking at colleges about um, all sorts of things, sometimes about cartooning or whatever. But I always go back to trying to convince people to support the these shops, these mom and pop shops, and and book sport bookstores especially. I always like to say that bookstores. Uh, are these locations that contain the the dreams of so many writers. If you think about how much work went into all the books on the bookshelves, it's really daunting. It's amazing when you think about like how important bookstores are. And they usually are the intellectual hub of any main street. It's where the community intellectually kind of gathers, not just for books, but a lot of times it's the first place maybe a poet or a musician do a performance. And so I think they're very important. This book features independent bookstores all across the world? It's all around the world. And I try to make it the most beautiful or the most historically um, relevant. Like some stores in the book include, um, there's one that's like from, it's like earliest store in America. They opened in, in 17 something. I'm sorry, I don't remember. 1760, I believe. And they're in Pennsylvania. And... There's other bookstores that have uniqueness to them. Um, there's one in Venice that's often underwater where you go into the shop. You sometimes have to wear boots if it's huh. a flood season. And the bookstore has the books stored in a gondola and also bathtubs and other places to protect the books. And you walk through the store that way. How long ago did you do this book? This was, let's see, um, my goodness, it was 2016. And since then, it's been published in a few different languages. Um, and also, a TV pilot was made. They were hoping to do like an Anthony Bourdain type of show in which we went to bookstores and stuff. But it didn't quite pan out. The people who, there was like a lot of famous people involved in it, but they're all involved with so many projects that it got put on the shelf, pun intended. And hopefully one day they'll be revisited because I think that will help a lot of bookstores to see what it means to a lot of people because the premise is, is that we gathered a lot of famous people and not always celebrities, but people who were affected by bookstores, how a bookstore changed their life. And you find that for a lot of people, it was a turning point. An example is um, Bob Oldenkirk. He's a comedian and actor. He stars in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And he explained how in Chicago, uh, he went into Barbara's books, and it changed his life. He was exposed to the art of acting, and he pursued that that vocation and stuff, and bookstores changed his whole life. So that's what it's all about, is how, how do books change lives and really make a person? Have many of the bookstores featured in the book closed since you did the project well, in 2016? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a lot of new ones that came up that are new now that I'm going to start painting. I've done about a dozen bookstores since the book that I painted and collect stories, and I put those out there somehow, either online or sometimes they were published in magazines like uh, Publishers Weekly. Anytime I do a new bookstore, they like to do that. And then I like to try to support new stores in other ways as well. There's a convention for bookstore owners, and uh, what we do is I'll randomly pick one of the stores to paint and we give it away as a prize, and we do that sort of thing. There's like big contests where bookstores get drawn into different things. Like I've been doing some cartoons now, and I add the bookstores to the background. Mm. Yeah, so 
it's been fun. I feel like I'm part of this sort of family, and um, I'm rooting for them. <laughs> you mentioned book culture closing, but what bookstore today is your favorite in New York City? Yeah, I do have favorites, but I can't uh-huh. pick one. It's like having a, a family of children. I, went, I, I wrote down a couple that I heard from recently, because these, these bookstores, they're amazing. They, they get back to me, and they say, oh, um, I want to thank you. and you know, We want you to know that we're trying to um, support your book. And in some cases, I go in person and I'll sign books. And I actually wrote down a couple, that, and they're all places I've done events, with the exception of Three Lives in the Village. And that's only because they're like the size of a closet. Mm. If I had a book event there, we'd be like one-on-one. That'd be one-on-one <laughs> with the attendees. One at a time. <laughs> yeah, because that's an amazing store. They have a, such a small little thing, but they pack in so much goodness. And that's like a, sort of a landmark down there. Other stores are Rizzoli. Now, Rizzoli's been moving around because they, like everyone else, have to deal with the rent. So they handle it, but they just try to find the, the next location. But when I first went to Rizzoli, they had the most majestic, beautiful store. I think it was like 57th Street. Do you remember? It would have been up there, I think, that they had that big glass front where you walk in. Now I know. It's 57th Street where they had this enormous glass front. It inside it looked like gold. It was like really so ornate and stuff. Now they're downtown around 26th Street on Broadway. I've done an event with them, and they have my books there. They've always been really kind and really, really generous. Uh, Greenlight and Word in Brooklyn are the stores in Brooklyn that, among other stores too, that are really great stores for the community because they do so many like live events, and they, they do so much. They help the people also starting out too. That's a great place for people who are local to get their first start. Another place, of course, is Strand. Strand is, you know, an iconic place. Uh, They claim to have eight miles of books. And the owner recently passed away, um, Ross, and he was very kind. And he used to be the guy in the back when you sold your books. If you ever went in with used books, he was actually handling the sales. Mm. And then Barnes and Nobles has been fantastic. And people sometimes mistaken them for being like the enemy to independent bookstores when in fact that's not actually the case. They're very charitable. If you go to um, Westchester and you go to hospitals and to nursing homes, they all have libraries. And I always like to ask, where did you get your books? How do you get donations? And they say Barnes and Nobles donates them and places like that. And Barnes and Nobles also help new writers. Online, I won't mention the name, but those big online booksellers do not cultivate young writers like Barnes and Nobles do. And the way Barnes and Nobles would do it is they pre-order and they pay publishers for different things that independent bookstores just simply can't do. That money that the publishers get go to advances to hire books that they normally might not take a risk on. Now, you just finished a 70,000-word project, right? A fictional 1850 diary? It was one of my New Year's resolutions was to finish this manuscript. It's um, a book that I've been writing, and it's going to be illustrated. It's an 1850 diary. It's about... A diary of who? It's a fictional character. He, they're looking for the missing Sir John Franklin. The explorer John Franklin was looking for the North... Uh, West Passage and got lost. And that part is true. And his wife put up this enormous reward that was worth today's money, like $7 million. 
And so I wanted to write about what it would be like to be a stowaway on one of these ships, one of the many ships that went off to the Arctic Circle in search of this missing person. And I turned it into a dark comedy, and I really had a great time. And I just turned in the manuscript part, and hopefully it will find a home. My agent's very excited about it. And I'm always looking for something new. And as I mentioned, trying to learn something new. And so this book gave me an opportunity to learn about a subject I loved, but I didn't really wasn't an expert on. And I did my research on this. It, it took about 10 years to do the research and to develop this storyline and then to carry it one step further because I'm a nut job. I went back to my home in Pennsylvania and gutted out the, art, the attic and turned it into the inside of a ship. You did not. You did, really. Yeah, to get into the mood of the story, which I do sometimes for all these projects. I try to get myself in the right mood and put myself in the shoes of the other person, whether it's pretending to be a bookstore owner or or trying to think that I'm on a ship and I'm, I'm in the captain's quarters. That's fantastic. And it's all done nautically. The whole room was done to the T, including the floors and the ceilings, which have the same sort of oil uh, coating <clears throat> that you would have on a whaling ship. Well, Bob, any other words of wisdom you want to leave us with before we let you go? I recovered everything. My goodness. We did. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you. For more information about Bob Eckstein and his work, check out his website, bobeckstein.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Laura Babiak and Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening. 